Hi, this is Pastor Paul J. Chandran, and you're listening to Life Church Castle Hill Podcast. Now, who is James and what is he writing about? James, we know he's the half brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. He grew up with Jesus, he watched and observed Jesus, and he struggled to believe in Jesus. But then, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appeared to him personally. And when he saw the resurrected Jesus, he gave his life to him. Now, I want you to see how he responds in his book. That when he pens, he says, James, a servant of the Lord God, of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls his own half-brother his God. Not only his God, his Lord. That means he's my master, he's my king. And not only he's my master and my king, he is the one who deserves my all. He is my everything. And he is now in a place where he pens something for the early church. I want you to listen to me carefully because this book is the first episode that was written in the New Testament. It is the earliest writings in the early church or the first letter that has ever been written. Long before Paul writes his epistles, long before any other gospels was written, this is the first letter that was written. So James has played a significant contribution to the body of Christ by penning down how Christians should view life and how Christians should live life. Now, when you come to James, he addresses only one core thing about in his entire five chapters. He addresses one thing. He addresses the issue of faith. Do, how do I know that you truly have faith in God? How do I know that you truly have faith? And if you have faith, how would it manifest in your life? So he addresses the issue of faith because many of us, we know, faith is something of matter of the heart. And we all know that God looks at your heart. And so God knows, God knows whether you believe or you don't believe. Whether you're believing or you're bluffing. You know, God knows. But how would your neighbor know? How would your neighbor know that you do believe? Your neighbor can only know based on your behavior. Your neighbor can only know based on your actions. So here is a very fundamental thing that James is addressing. If you say you have faith, then it must be seen in how you live life. And if, you, if, you, if I can look at the way you live your life, then I know that you do have faith in God. So that's the way he is looking at this and he is addressing the issue of faith. So when you look at James, James keeps speaking about how faith is matured in a person's life. What has he got to go through in life for a faith to mature? So I want you to think about this one word as the lens as you study the book of James. Now, when you look at James, I also said, James is writing this and one of the earliest letters and he's writing after the early church has witnessed the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. Now, that event has taken place and that event has changed the course of history. Now, there is another event that is going to come and this is going to culminate everything. What is that event? That event is when this Lord Jesus returns back to this world. First time he came as the savior of the world to die for the sins of the mankind. The second time he comes, he's not coming as the savior. He's coming as the judge of all. Not only is he coming as the judge, he's going to declare that this world has become the kingdom of God. He's going to come and establish his kingdom completely and become the king who rules and reigns. So these two events are very important. Now, if you, fall, if you go and see what this end will look like in the book of Revelation, it says something like this, that God will one day, when Jesus comes back and establish this kingdom of this world, we become the kingdom of God. What happens is God will destroy this present world. He will remove this present world. He will destroy this earth and he will create a new earth. He will create a new heaven. And this new earth and new heaven will be forever and ever. This new heaven and new earth will also have new creation. Everything is created new. I want you to listen to me. So where do we go from, from here? So in between these two events, I want you to look at this. The Bible says when you are born again, what does born again means? Born again means you're born into this world in sin. You have sinful inclinations. You have sinful desires. You have sin attached to your heart. 
But then when God redeems you, he he redeems you and you are forgiven of your sin. You repent of your life. You come back and give yourself completely to him. You become born again. When you're born again, you are given new nature. You are given new affections. The old things have gone. Everything has become new, Paul writes. And you are a new creation. This new creation, what does that mean? It means now you have a new desire to please God. Now you have a new desire to live for him. We already established what is the gospel in the first sermon. What is the gospel? The gospel is the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? Our God is now the king. God is now becoming my king. So when I come to Christ and say, Christ, I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to give you my sin and take your righteousness into my life. What I'm saying is, God, I want you to become my king. Many of us, we think of salvation as two-step process. One is we become Christ, we, Christ becomes my savior. And then eventually Christ becomes my Lord. No, it is only one step process. The day I come to Christ, I give him my whole heart. I give him my whole life. I give him my everything. And when I give him my everything, I declare that he becomes my Lord. Lord means he is the owner. Lord means that he is my master. That means he's my king. From here on, my life is dictated by him. How I live my life, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I spend my, where I focus on in my life, everything will be dictated by my master, my king. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be new creation. And the old creation, the old man will say, I don't want God to be my king. But the new creation, you are set free from the bondage of sin to be able to say, I, I gladly receive God as my king. I want to give him my life. I want him to dictate the terms upon which I live my life. This is how you and I, we are not to live right now. Between the time that Jesus ascended into heaven, can I have a little bit more volume? And the time when he's coming back in glory, we are supposed to live a life of the kingdom where God is king and we are submitted to him. Now, while we are living in this season, in this season, the Bible calls you, you and I, we are new creation, the first fruits of his creation. Look at James. This is how he addresses it. I want you to go with me to chapter one of James and look at verse number 18. He addresses the issue of salvation here. He addresses the issue of you and I being adopted into the family of God. And this is what he says. Of his own will, whose will? God's will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. God brought us forth out of his own will. He decided, he made the decision to love you and to redeem you. And when he made that decision, he brought us forth. In other words, he gave birth to you. You have become born again by the word of truth. And what does he end with? He says that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. What does that mean to be the first fruits of his creatures? This is what it means. God is in the business of reconciling everything back to himself. One day at the end of time, he will reconcile the world. How would he do that? He would remove the old and put the new. There will be a new heaven, new earth. And in this season... There will be new creation. All the people that have been born of God, all the people that have been born again, they will be there, part of the new creation. Old is gone, the new has come. But you and I, we are the first fruits of this creation. These are the first fruits. That means now I see this. These are the first fruits. The first fruits, it's in any time when there is a harvest, you cut the first fruits that come up. These are the best of the crops. These are the first things that are happening. And then you, rest, you do the rest. And God says, this people that I've created for myself, they are going to live, live differently until the culmination of time when the new creation is fully established. New heaven, new earth, and the new people, you and I, every tongue, every tribe combined, one under God as king. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Why? This is how you and I are supposed to live. God as my king. God is my king. He is my Lord, my master. That means how I live my day-to-day -day life, I live in reference to him. I live in deference to him. In other words, I submit to him. 
My life is his. My time is his. My money is his. My every aspect of my life is his. And because he takes everything, he's my Lord, he's my king, he dictates the terms upon which I live. But the problem with this is this. All throughout the world, there are many people who are claiming to be born again, who claim that they have believed in Christ because they have said a sinner's prayer, but they have never really given their heart totally to him. Many of them claim verbally, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for me. But the reality is they live life in such a manner that you cannot tell the difference between them and the one who don't really believe because there's no fundamental change. There is no new creation happening inside of them. What do you call people like that? You know, there's a biblical term that Jesus uses. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6. Let me go to Matthew 6 first. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, there, there will be a group of people that will think they have light, but the light in them will be darkness. How great is the darkness, Jesus says. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, while we are in it, I'll just give you a summary of it. Matthew 6 verse 19 to verse 34 is an interesting passage. Memorize it. Because in this passage, 19 to 34, he addresses one key thing. How in life you can, who is truly your master in life? Who is truly the one who has your allegiance of heart? Because if you truly have God as your master, your life will live differently. That's why in verse 25 all the way to verse 34, three times the Bible says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. In other words, if you truly know God as your master, God as your king, there will be no anxiety in your life. You won't be concerned about the daily needs. You won't be concerned and worried about your life of the future, the uncertainty of the future. But if you do not have the right master guiding you, leading you, and your life is in your own hands, you will be full of trouble, full of anxiety. Then he comes and he says, how, does this, how do you know that a person has made God their master? Verse 19 to verse 24, he addresses three key issues. Let me summarize it for you. Number one, he addresses this in verse 19 to 21. He addresses one thing, treasure. Where is your treasure in life? People will say, my treasure, I store it in earth. And God says, if you store treasure on earth, moth and rust will destroy. Thieves will break in and steal. But there is a place where you can store your treasure. Your treasure is stored in heaven where neither moth nor rust will destroy. Where thieves will not break in and steal. So where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. What he says is, your treasure will determine, what you treasure will determine who truly your master is. What your treasure, where is your treasure? How you store your treasure? What your relationship with the treasure, that will reveal the condition of your heart, whether you have God as your master or not. Then he goes into verse 24, he says, no one can have two masters. For he will hate one and love the other. He will despise one and devote himself to the other. And he puts two things side by side and he says, choose one to be your master. What he's doing is this, carefully observe this. He's saying, there can be only one place where you store your treasure. It's either earth or heaven. There's only one master you can have. It's either God or money. You got to choose which one your loyalty will go. You got to choose who will be your one that dictates the terms upon which you live life. In between these two, he plugs in in verse 22 and 23, something to do with the eye. I want you to listen to me carefully. What he says with the eye. He says, if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now you and I, we understand this. Eye means how I see things. My perspective has to be right. Because if you don't have the right perspective, your whole body will be full of darkness that means your life will be filled with darkness but if you have the right perspective then your whole life will be fine will be full of meaning full of purpose perspective is important how many of you agree with that you know uh, a teacher science teacher came to her five-year-olds and she said I want to demonstrate the dangers of alcohol and she says look at this she put a whole glass full of alcohol 
And then she took a worm and she said, look, look, live worm. And she put the worm inside the glass filled with alcohol. And the worm shriveled up and died. So she says, see, what did you all learn? One kid stood up, said, I learned that if I have worms, I should drink alcohol. <laughs> What's the difference? For the teacher, the danger is in the alcohol. For the kid, the danger is in the worm. Perspective. Perspective always matters. That's why he says, what do you focus on? You know, in life, you and I, we focus on only one thing. We think we can focus on a lot of things. No, no, no. There's only one thing you're focusing on. Either it's God or, you, or the world. It's either God or money. What is driving you? Who has your loyalty? Who's dictating the terms upon which you live your life? That's why Jesus says, there's only one treasure. There's only one master. So if your eye is bad, your life will be filled with darkness. There are four kinds of darkness in the Bible. The darkness is light. When you turn off the light, it becomes dark. The nighttime, that's a darkness. The second darkness that happens is because of sin. The Bible says sin will give you darkness. That means you're blinded. You're blindfolded. So sin will produce darkness in your life. Not only sin will produce, ignorance will also produce darkness. I do not know blur, blur. You know, some people have quite blur. Um, in, in Singapore, they say blur like sotong. You know what sotong? It's a calamari. I don't know why calamari is so blur. I don't know. <laughs> they were saying blur like sotong. But the reality is people are blur, blur. That means they don't know what's going on. That's a darkness. But then all these darkness are okay. You can deal with it. But there is one darkness that's really bad. That darkness is you don't think it's dark. <laughs> At least someone gets it. If you don't think it's dark, you don't think anything is wrong with it. In other words, it's the deception. It's the darkness of deception. So when Jesus addressed this issue in verse 23, look at this, the last line. Look at this. If your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And then he finishes like this. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is your darkness? What was he saying? He was saying this. If you think you have light, you walk around claiming, I have light. I have light. You walk around claiming that you know light, you do light, you have light. But the reality is, you don't have light. You, what you actually have is darkness. But you keep claiming you have light when you only have darkness. How great is your darkness? In other words, he was dealing with one thing called deception. Self-deceived. This is the most dangerous thing that you and I can face as believers. When you truly are not saved, you walk around as though you are saved. It is like walking around with a false sense of security. Walking around with a false sense of assurance. When you know, for I know, that you don't have it. Your wife knows that you don't have it. Your children know you don't have it. But the reality is, you think you got it. Now, that's the false sense of security, false sense of deception. And the Bible says, self-deceived is the worst thing that can happen to you and me. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus goes on to say, last days, there will be people who stand with me in front of me and they will say, in your name, Lord, we did this. In your name, we did that. And he will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me. In other words, just because they can do a lot of things in the kingdom, we are impressed, but they don't have any relationship with God. They are the angels of light. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Self-deception. How does this apply to James Lavaster? You've given a rundown in James, Matthew chapter 6. You know, and interestingly in James chapter 1, when James is addressing the issue, how to live life in the kingdom, when knowing that everything is going to become new, you and I, we are the part of the new creation, you and I, we have God as our king, how do we live life? He addresses one core thing. How do I know you have faith? You need to know through how you do life, how you live life. But in the midst of it, don't be in deception. That's why in this chapter 1 of James, three times in one chapter, he uses the word deceive. I want you to listen to me and go with me to James chapter 1 and verse 16. As a student of the Bible, every time you read the Bible, pay attention to things that are repeated. 
words that are repeated, phrases that are repeated. Why? Because that's an emphasis the writer wants you to grasp. Here in verse 16, it says, read it together with me, 3, 2, 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. In other words, don't be deceived. And in verse 22, verse 22, be doers of the word of God, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. In other words, I have listened to a lot of sermons over the years. I know stuff. It ain't nothing. It means nothing. You can listen to all the sermons in the world. You can listen to numerous podcasts. It means absolutely nothing. But it gives you a false sense of superiority because I know stuff. I know stuff. You know, someone can say, you know, I know the Greek behind uh, when the Bible says, love your wife, I know the Greek behind it. But the reality is, it doesn't matter whether you know the Greek or the Hebrew behind it. Why is your wife so miserable? That's what matters. <laughs> Are you with me? If you really love your wife, why is she so miserable? That's the key. You and I, it's not about how much we know. It's, it's all to do with what has happened here. Otherwise, we are deceived. So what James writes and he says, do not deceive yourselves. Stop deceiving. It's not about hearing good sermons alone. But once you heard the word of God, what is your relationship with the truth? Are you applying it? Are you somebody who applies? Then there is a difference. Then there is a difference. Then he goes on to say, in other words, go with me to in verse number 26. In verse 26 he says, if anyone thinks he is religious. What he means by religious? It means that you are thinking that you are someone spiritual, someone who have been doing church a long time and you know stuff. You can quote from Genesis to Revelation, including the maps and the concordance at the back. Uh, you can actually, you know stuff. But the reality is, if anyone thinks he's religious, but does not bridle his tongue. In other words, it doesn't change the way you respond to things that happen to you. What is tongue? Tongue is an indicator of what's going on in your heart. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. So when you are reacting to situations, how would we know what happens with your tongue? So if he says, if you do not brittle, in other words, there's no self-control in your tongue. What are you doing? You are just deceiving yourself in your heart. And this person's religion is absolutely worthless. Three times in one chapter, he addresses this so he doesn't want us to miss it. Don't be self-deceived. Self-deception is what we need to examine. So how do I examine my own self-deception? How can I know that I don't know stuff? Even if I know it here, it's not, nothing is changing. You know, over the years, as I've been a pastor in this country, the hardest people that I had to deal with are people who are self-deceived. They're absolutely self-deceived. That means they think they are right. They think they have a right. They think they have entitlement. They think they, are, they have somehow, they, are, they know it. And when you come to those people and they can't see beyond what's going on in their own world, they can't. So you and I, we need to come and say, examine our hearts. And sometimes, because we do not know how to examine our hearts, you know what God graciously does to us? He puts you into circumstances where your heart is revealed. This is what you and I will call trial. If you do not know what is inside a can that is, that is opaque, you can't see through it. Something is inside there. What would reveal to the... What is inside the, in, the, in, the, in the container? Only if I shake it violently, then whatever's inside will spill out. You and I, when we go through the test, only when we go through the, the trials, that's when you know, the revelation comes up. What is inside comes out. You get a shock of your own life. Have you, unless you, you don't know what you're really like. You know, everybody says, Everybody says in their wedding day, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us apart. Everybody means well, but it's only tested when you're really poorer 
and someone is sick and you what how you whether those words mean anything are you listening trials reveals the heart that's why he says don't be so so self deceived when you go through stuff that's when your real heart will emerge so in this chapter when he's dealing with deception what does he address he addresses by starting by saying you will have trials it's not if you will have trials he says when you have trials go with me to verse 2 verse 2 he says count it all joy i'm glad he said count it all joy and not it's all fun when you're going through trials because it's not fun when you're going through trials you laugh you cry you weep you 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 break your heart breaks but the reality is he says my brothers when you meet various kinds of trials count it all joy what is the count it all joy means it means you're not necessarily asked to be happy but you're asked to be joyful what is happy and joyful let me give you the difference happy is when a kid gets happy meal <laughs> that's happy no for us what's happy happy is when the happenings happen to happen the way i want it to happen then i am happy that's the reality when the happenings are happening the way i want it to happen then i'm really happy but when the happenings are not happening the way you want it to happen then what are you <laughs> you're supposed to be joyful so how can you be joyful in the midst of it something has to be fundamentally anchoring you in a place where your heart posture is joyful in this passage you will find what is that one thing what is that one thing is the unchanging qualities of who your god is that's what he is bringing to he's saying you can be joyful you know why because god sovereignly is orchestrating events in your life not to destroy you but to build you to shape you to mold you to help you understand that you have a king in your life but this trial is a good good word to to think about the word in greek trial is pariasmos and this word pariasmos means two things it can also mean testing it can also mean temptation so you and i we need to understand the difference what's a testing testing comes from outside God tests his people. Testing comes from outside to know whether you know stuff. But what is temptation? Temptation comes from within. There is a desire from within to do certain things. For example, when you're going through a trial, you're going through a trial where you have not much finances in your life. You're going through a testing of your faith. While you're going through the testing of your faith, God wants to be your provider. How many of you believe that? You can say today God is my provider but it's only tested when you don't have options. And when you're going through that trial and you look to God and you say God you're my source you're my provider you're a faithful God. Now God doesn't answer you immediately. In the trial God doesn't open up the banks of heaven and pour out blessing that you have no room to hold. You know all these are promises of God but it doesn't happen. And you're looking at what happened? What happened? Now that same situation of trial something inside comes up what is the inside that comes up the temptation comes up the temptation to now do matters into your own hands take matters into my own hands that means when you have only little you hold on to that little when you when you start to grumble and murmur and say god people who don't i don't think they deserve but they're blessed but i'm not You've been somehow bypassed me and you've been nice to them. I have been faithful to you. I've done this, I've done that for you, but you have not. And in that moment, your heart condition comes up. That's the temptation. That's the trial. But what God does through this is he allows you to mature, reveal your heart condition. But God has only one objective when you're going through this test and 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 temptation. Always remember this. Bible says very clearly temptation cannot be from god temptation god is not the one who tempts you god is not tempted with evil but god doesn't send those things but it's your own desire on the inside your own desire to say i will be my king i will dictate what happens in my life i will take my life back into my own hands that is the temptation 
But the Bible says, God, when he tests you, he wants you to be faithful. He wants you to be steadfast. So what James writes here in verse 3, he says, Let steadfastness have its full effect in your life, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does it mean? It means that you become mature, that your life is filled with no lack. I want you to listen to me very carefully. What does God want to me to do when I'm going through this trial? He wants you to do only one thing. Go with me to verse 12. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I want to pay attention to this line. He will receive the crown of life. What is the crown of life? It's not a crown where it's you... He's got a lot of diamonds and all stuff. And then you feel like, wow, I'm on it now. No, no, no. This crown of life is an imagery where he says, your life will be filled with God's goodness. God will make that life. Once you've withstood that trial and you remain steadfast, you will come to a place where you say, God, getting out of this trial is not my goal. It's not my goal. My goal is to become more like you. My goal is to give myself completely to you and to lean upon you, to depend upon you until I can come and enter into the life that you have for me. And that life that you have for me is an abundant life. It's a life where God is in charge, where God is my provider. God is my Lord. Amazing. The goal of every trial is to make you more Christ-like. The goal of every trial is to make you more dependent upon God. The goal of every trial is so you can come and declare, God, you are my reward. I've seen your faithfulness in my life in every season. That's what it is. But while you're going through this, do you know you don't know what to do? If I don't know what to do and I want to take, I'm tempted to take matters into my own hands, what do I need? I only need one thing, church. I need wisdom of God. That's why in this midst of it, he says in verse 5, let's read it together in verse 5. James chapter 1, verse 5. If you lack wisdom, if anyone lacks wisdom, what should he do? Let him ask God. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. In other words, he won't call you names. He won't remind you of your failures. He will just say, I will give it to you. If you ask for wisdom, I will give it to you. And it will be given him. But how often do we need this wisdom when you're going through trial? Every single day, every single moment. That's why you keep asking often. You know, let him ask. That word ask there is the word in Greek called lambano. Lambano means you're not satisfied just praying it once. You keep on asking. Come back. I need it. I need it. I need God. Give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. I need to know how to do this. Very important. So while you are in one, th first thing he addresses it, in the midst of your trials, know that you can come to God and ask for wisdom and you need to ask it over and over again and let him, every time you need, come back to him, ask him for wisdom. But in the mean, midst of that, you need to believe that God is able to provide for you. That's what he addresses here. I want you to listen to me very carefully. He says in verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that person should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's an unstable, double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. In other words, this is what it is. Do I trust God totally or do I take matters into my own hand? A man who has double-minded like this, he wants to give everything to God. But at the same time, he wants to take control of his own life. That man should not assume he will receive anything from God. Why? Because he's not totally giving it to him. He doesn't surrender his life. In other words, he's walking in self-deception. He thinks, I have asked God for help, but I have also given, give, have a plan B in my own. If God doesn't show up, I know what to do. Many of us are like that. So we need to come in our trials. We need to come. We exhaust all options. We come before God and we say, God, I have no other options. No plan B. Only plan A. Plan A is God, you do what you need to do. I, need, I trust you. I depend upon you. That's the key. So he says, if you ask God for wisdom, he will provide you wisdom. He will give you wisdom. I remember the time. When I was married, first three months, we were given a place in Cherrybrook through divine appointment, divine blessing. God gave us a place in Cherrybrook to stay for three months, rent free. And while we were there, 
I think many of you know this story. While, while we were there, there were certain seasons when there was no provision. There was no, nothing provided. And in those seasons, we lived life very um, day-to-day depending upon the Lord. There was one, one time, uh, during that time, you know, the, the most of the food that we ate is what you call Indomie. How many of you love Indomie? Indomie is my favorite food even today. Indomie. Indomie is an Indonesian Maggie Mee type noodles. But the one I like is the one where the sauce is so good, spicy. <laughs> so I always steal extra portion of sauce for my wife. Put it in mine. Now, that 40 cents a packet, very good. 40 cents a packet. Whether it's good for your health, I don't know, but it's good. <laughs> Tastes good and satisfies. Very good. Now, there was one time when all we had for a few one or few weeks, there was only $200 that was in our hand. In that time of 200 here's a guy who, on, when I was living by myself in Singapore, first day, I gave away everything that the Lord commanded, $80 in my pocket, I emptied it, gave it to the Lord. I wept, I wept, and I sowed in tears anyway, but that was different. Now I have a wife to look after, and this is the only amount we have. So this amount was huge in my heart. So when a time came, comes to tithe out of that, that $20 was a lot of money. Because that $20 was a lot of money, I held very tight. Tempted to hold it back. I was. And I held it. And I was like, well, when you provide, you know, it's, it's like I'm a businessman. When cash flow comes, this will go out. But I'm just managing the cash flow for now. You know, you can think like that. Managing cash flow. When the cash flow comes, this will go. But right now, I'm managing cash flow. I, I'm not disobeying. I'm just, but the Lord was very clear in my heart. Obey. I wasn't. During those times when you have nothing, your emotions rise up on anything. You get upset very easily. You get quickly into a place of anything becomes an explosion. I always say, I never fight with my wife. We only have intense fellowship. There's a big difference. And we are both very stubborn people. We're both very high D personality. We're both very determined in, in, in winning the argument, you know? So <laughs> there's no argument. It's just fellowship, right? So while we are doing this, one day, for some reason, we were just, I can't even remember now what we were talking about. But we were in one of those intense fellowship moments. We were driving our vehicle. I was, I was driving it and I'm there at the, Coming out of Cherrybrook, Hastings Road, that corner where the Old Northern Road and Hastings Road meet. Now there is a traffic light. Those days, no traffic light. I was just there. I just touched the front vehicle. The front vehicle did not know I touched him, so he left. It was an old, beaten up Land Cruiser. <laughs> so he gone. And I, I, was, I, was, I thought, he didn't realize it. That means nothing. Came, looked at the damage. The whole carburetor had uh, been damaged. The whole uh, panel had gone inside. I was like, Lord, have mercy on me. Then we went to the panel beater. He looked at it. He goes, the cost was $600. I went before the Lord. I said, Lord, you know, I'm on budget. <laughs> you know, what you provide, what you provide, I live with. Now, things like this, you know, I trust that you can protect me from all evil, harm, and danger. What happened? And the Lord says, what happened to you? When did $200 become so big? When did 20 become so big that you can't trust me with this? When, when you know everything I've given you is mine, that you can't, what happens? I tell you, that's the temptation of our human heart. Where we don't see things happen, we take matters into our hand. We hold it and we become like that. Preservation. And in that moment, the Lord was so merciful. He educated me to come to a place to trust Him. I said, Lord, I know I depend upon you. I empty this. I'm in your hands. Of course, cut the long story short, through some mutual friend's recommendation, I ended up in a place in Prospect and this panel beater looked at it and says, I can do it for 150 Praise God, I had the money. <laughs> Pay that, get it sorted out. I learned a big lesson in my life. What was the lesson? That yes, you are tempted to take matters into your own hand. 
when you are in a certain position. When you're going through trial, you don't know that it is. When you're going through it, your temptation surfaces. You know, many times we think about temptations as the big things. The temptation to jump into bed with somebody who's not your spouse. You know, maybe some of you struggle with that, but that's something that's a big thing. That's a big thing. You know, temptation to do something that is out of the ordinary. Cheat on this, cheat on that. Misrepresent the, here the truth and all that. Some people have a character flaw where they do that. But we, those things, you and I, we know that these are big temptations. Like the other day when I was in life group, someone said, I don't have any temptation to rob a bank. <laughs> but the temptation to rob a bank may not be present, but the temptation to rob God, according to Malachi, is present in all of us. Does that make sense? Sometimes we think about temptation as the big things. But can I humbly say that temptation is actually not in the big things. It is in the subtle things. In the subtle things. What is the temptation? Do you know to be worried is sin? And the more you are worried, it's the more you are sinning. The more you are anxious. The anxiety is a temptation. And when you are anxious, it doesn't just manifest as only anxiety. It manifests as if you're a wife, it manifests as PMS to your family. No. What, what is that, Pastor? If you're married, like you know, like, no, no, no. What is that? PMS stands for pre something, something, or sometimes it's post something, something. But as you age, it becomes permanent something, something. You know, sometimes people just don't change. It's like permanent condition. What happened? She used to be nice. The reality is temptation, anxiety, worried in the heart. That worried in your heart is a temptation. But that worriedness in your heart will cause you to procrastinate. Delay the obedience that God asks of you. If God asks you to do something, you delay it. And that's a temptation to delay. And the temptation is to give excuses for your disobedience. You know, some, the, most, the most common excuse that pastors hear is this. I know God understands. I'm just going through a season right now. So in this season, I can't uh, do uh, much. Uh, uh, so when this season finish, uh, I will be fine. And you know what? That season seemed to never finish. That season sometimes takes forever. Never finish. In other words, it's not delaying what God has asked you to do. It's doing it now. It's, it's about obeying God right now. In this season, when you're a bachelor, obey God. When you're a husband and you're a family man, obey God. When you have young kids, obey God. When you have grandkids, obey God. Every season of our life, we need to obey God. But the temptation is to hold back and to say, I will obey God freely when my kids leave home. Then you realize when your kids leave home, you're very free, but you're not free for God. Are you listening? Listen to me very carefully. Don't give excuses. Come. The temptation is to be anxiety. The temptation is to procrastinate. It's to, to delay. It's to, it's to come to a place where you neglect the fundamentals. It's to neglect. The temptation. See, the temptation, the Bible says, is subtle. That's why he addresses the issue of temptation here. He says, let, in verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. For he himself tempts no one. But then verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured, enticed by his own desire. That means there's something inside of you that's human nature that rises up and says, I like this way. I like my own pleasure. I like my own Way of doing things. So that desire then creeps up, conceives, gives birth to sin. And when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Listen to me carefully. Many times, death doesn't happen until there is a birth. Birth doesn't happen unless there is a conception. Conception, conception doesn't happen unless there is a desire. And you bite that desire. Long before a woman jumps into a bed with a man that is not her husband. Long before. Why should we always use the man as example? I huh? lose the woman. Long before. Long before. 
That happens. Has it happened recently in, in, in the world today? Yes, of course. Does it happen everywhere, in every culture? Yes. You think, oh, that conservative culture, it won't happen. No. People are people. Sin is sin. Vulnerability is vulnerability. Human heart condition. The loneliness that, that comes. Even when you're married, that loneliness is not addressed. I want you to listen to me carefully. Many people think that when they feel lonely, marriage is the solution. No, you can get married and still feel lonely. Loneliness is a heart condition, not fixed with marriage. Marriage is two healthy people coming together. But there's so much dysfunction between the two, in either of them. It, it will, that dysfunction will only magnify in an environment of marriage. Listen to me carefully. This is the key. So when it comes there, there's that, dis, that, that desire. That desire is, oh, I just wish someone can understand. You know, this guy is like talking to a brick wall. He's emotionally unavailable to me. The husband could be emotionally unavailable. So the wife, the woman feels that I need someone to talk to. And it all starts with innocent talking. Listen, it's only a talking. Oh, it is only texting. Oh, it is only catching up for a meal. Oh, we just happen to stay in the same hotel. We are just going to different rooms. Oh, we ended up in the same bed. Oh, what happens now? Can I humbly say, it has to be stopped not when you reach the hotel room. It has to be stopped when you entertain the thought. Haha, here is a person who understands me. Alarm bell should go off. But we don't, enter, we, don't, we don't stop it there. When we don't stop it there, we don't draw the line. We don't put ourselves in a place of accountability. We don't come and die to the selfish desire. You know, I was reading one place where they said, the greatest deception that people buy into is this lie. It won't hurt anybody. It's just one time. You can be king for the day. You can be queen for the day. You deserve it. You are entitled for it. Can I humbly say, it's only one time. But all it takes is just that one time. For you to have death, the death of relationships, the death of trust, the death of your credibility. All it takes is that one time. So that's why don't allow it to come to a place where it's conceived. When it's conception has taken place, it's no time to abort. It, it will come out no matter what. So stop, be wise, flee. That's why the Bible says when you have youthful lust, how do you react to it? Flee from the place. Put some boundaries in. From the pastor to the member, everyone, we are vulnerable. We need to have self-awareness of this. Put boundaries. Have proper accountability. Don't deal with temptation like that. But it only shows the desires of our heart. So how do I know that these things are still in me? Pastor, it has never manifested. Doesn't mean that you don't have it. It will manifest at the right time. So how do I deal with something that hasn't manifested yet, but I know I have it because we are all sinful. We are depraved in our hearts. How do we do that? That's why the Bible says, not only you ask for wisdom and you deal with trials, but the second one is your relationship with the word of God. Not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In other words, hear the word of God. It's like listening, looking at the mirror. He says this, you go home and read. He says, I listen to the word of God as though I'm looking at the mirror. And when I look at the mirror, I see my dirt. I see where I fail. I see my vulnerabilities. I see. But the problem is, many of us, we don't have that kind of relationship with the word. We look at the word to get a good word. God will provide. God will bless. God will take care. But the reality is, you know how much sin is inside our hearts. We pray all the time. We pray for, Lord, I pray for safety. But we don't pray for purity. Purity will kill you. Purity is disastrous for your, impurity is disastrous for your life, your marriage, your parenting. But we don't pray for purity. We pray for safety. As though that's so important. It is, it is. But much more important is the purity of our hearts. Go and explore the values. Lord, why I enjoy doing this over that. Why I've been putting away that and not doing that. Help me to understand my life. Help me to understand. Let the word of God come and convict. It's a, it's a person who listens to word and thinks, okay, I'm okay. That's a self-deception. But when a person listens to the word, he reads the word. He reflects upon his life. 
he records what God speaks through the word. And then he responds and he says, God, I see these things in my heart. I see these things in my life. I want you to deal with me. That is dying to ourself. That is crucifying on the cross. That's the one that you got to deal with every day. But the problem with many of us, including many preachers in the pulpit, because we do things well, because we can tick a few boxes here and there, we assume we should be fine. And that's the greatest deception of all. Let's come back to that place where the Bible says, don't be deceived, people. Don't be deceived. Come, deal with the temptation. Deal with that. So what do we do? How do we do it? Verse 22 says, verse 21. Read, read with me, verse 21. He says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. As a pastor, it, it breaks my heart more when I see people who look at the word of God and then they go, yeah, God understands. I'm fine. He's happy with what I have given. He's happy with what I do. He's happy. I feel good. I'm happy with that. That's my life. I weep for you. You know why? Because it's not okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. It's okay. It's, if, you, if it's okay for you today, believe me, there will be a time when you wake up and you weep and you weep and there will be no point of return. Come before God today and say, God, have all of my life. Not some of my commitments, but all of my heart. A surrender of my heart. Why do God keep you bringing through struggles and, and trials so that you know the condition of your heart? Come, don't give, give in to the temptation. Overcome that. Come before God. Deal with it. Deal with all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness, humility of heart to say, God, I need this. I need this. And the Bible says, by which you will be able to save your life. Save your life. One of the core things about our life is this. Not only there will be trials, the testing of our faith and the temptations of our heart. In between these things, what is going to anchor you? It's your relationship with prayer. Asking God for wisdom. God, give me wisdom. I need help. And it's also coming before God and to say, God, I need your word to lighten my path. I need your word to reveal the condition of my soul. I need to know that there are darkness inside my heart. I need to deal with this. Help me with your word, both. But there is an encouragement in all this. What is the encouragement, Pastor? The encouragement is this, that you have a God who is very committed to you. He's faithful to you. Look at what he says in all this. When you're going through trials, when you're going through temptation, know this one thing. Look at what he says, know this. Verse 16, verse 17. Let's read it together. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. I like that word, beloved. Twice it appears in this passage. Twice he calls the brothers beloved. You know, it's amazing. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He calls himself, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, right? He's the half-brother. And he now says, you are my brother. That means we are all related and he says you're all part of one family and this family is a beloved family beloved what does beloved mean beloved means you're loved by God unconditionally you're loved by God you're somebody God treasures you're somebody that God brags about so when he allows you to go through trials you're still his beloved when you're tempted on the inside you're still his beloved but how does this beloved need to look at the beloved master this is how you look at him. Look at this in verse 17. Every good, let's read it together. Three, two, one. Now who's going to read that? You change. Let's read that again. Every good gift. What does he mean by every good gift? You know, God is a God who gives good his act of giving is good. He has good intentions. He has good heart. He gives you good. So that's the good gift. But what kind of gift God gives? Perfect gift. God is good. He gives you gift. In his gift giving, he is good. He doesn't have to give you, but he gives because of his goodness. And in his goodness, he gives you gift. And what kind of gift is he giving? Perfect. 
It's a perfect gift. And this perfect gift comes from above. And what kind of God gives you the gift? He's a father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, you know, depending on where the position of sun is, you can have shadows. But do you know when sun is right at the over our heads in the noontime, there's no real shadow. Reality is God, when He becomes, when He is truly Lord over your life, there is no shadow. He doesn't change. He's a God who doesn't change in your life. You may think He changed. He was good to me then. He's not good to me now. Can I humbly say, He's always been good to you. It's just that you see goodness differently. You think that when a, when a surgeon is about to cut that growth, is he a good surgeon? Is he being good to you by cutting it out? He is. If he's a good surgeon, he'll cut it out. But if he's not a good surgeon, he's not a good man, he'll just say, let it go. The reality is, he's doing it, but that's painful. Yes, but that's what is good. So he says, there is no shadow of turning. God is a God who doesn't change. He doesn't change when you go through trials. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today. He'll be the same tomorrow. He has good intentions. That's the thing that anchors you when you're going through testing and temptation. When you're tempted to doubt God, when you're tempted to withhold from Him, when you're tempted to take matters with your own hands, come back to that truth. With Him, nothing changes. He's an unchanging God. And then he says, verse 19, because you now know God is at work. He's an unchanging God. Verse 19, he starts by saying, know this people, my beloved brothers. Know this. This is one truth you need to know. What is it? Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then, hey, come on, next one. Slow to speak, slow to anger. And then, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, when you're going through those things and you don't think situations are happening fast enough, quick enough in your mind, don't get emotions riled up. Don't allow these things to come and fluctuate your emotions. What you need to watch out when you're going through trial is this, your anger. Don't become angry. Some people become so angry towards God. Some people get angry with everybody else. Don't become angry. That's the time you got to watch how you live. What do you do? If you're truly trusting in a God who is sovereign and He's in control, then you will be slow to speak, quick to hear. You will be in a place where you'll be slow to anger and you'll say, God, you are in charge. I will lay down my defense. You are in charge. You are able to provide. You are able to guide me. And that's the key, church. So in chapter one, all he addresses is if you live like this, your behavior will be like this. Your faith is like that. And it will manifest itself as true religion. Verse 27, he finishes by saying this. I just want to finish with this word. So you're free to go after this. He says, there must be control in your tongue. There must be control in your tongue. There must be a control in your tongue. And not only there's a control in your tongue, a religion that is pure and undefiled before God. It is like this. It is to visit orphans and widows and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What it means is this church. During those days, everybody was living off agriculture, farmlands. And man usually works, supports his wife and kids. But if the man dies, the wife and the children become vulnerable. Widow and orphans become vulnerable. Who takes advantage of them? Men who are wicked in their heart. Men who have no fear of God will take advantage of them. They will, the vulnerable women will be taken advantage of. The vulnerable children will be sold as slaves for the man's pleasure. I want you to listen to me carefully. What was he addressing? He's addressing that there will be a fundamental change when you do acknowledge God as your Lord. That you do not deceive yourself. If there is real change in your heart, He is your King now, you will live differently. There will be a care and concern for widows. You will see them as your own sisters in God. You will look after them. Your dead children will be like your nieces and nephews. You look after them. Not only that, 
there will be control in your tongue how you speak what you speak about the anger will not manifest you won't be quick to speak you won't be slow to hear but rather you'll be composed you listen more ask God for wisdom you will study more of the scriptures align your life back to him and in all these things you will keep yourself unstained from the world that's the key so you and I that's our journey on this earth while we wait for the coming of the Lord while he makes all things new you and I we are going through that process of change to be unstained from the world and to live a life of godliness where God is pleased and that only can happen if you surrender everything back to him and say God you're my king lead my life let's stand to our feet thank you for listening to our message we pray that God's word spoke to your heart and gave you an inspiration and encouragement if you are truly blessed by this would you take a moment to leave a comment or give us a rating on the apple podcast service not only that take an opportunity to share this on social media platforms so others who are in similar situations may be encouraged with the word of god we love you if you want to connect with our church go to connect.idmc.com.au and share with us where you're from what you're doing so that we can keep you in our prayers before the lord God bless you.